0: Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, Another weekly podcast of Bright Lights, uh, where we bring you achievers in all fields of human endeavors. And our goal is to share with you uh, the things that they've had to do to achieve uh, their attitude, philosophies, and just their approach to getting things done. Uh, I think that, especially for a lot of our youth, to hear so many negative feedbacks and uh, how you have to focus on obstacles. Well, we are obstacle busters here on uh, Bright Lights, and so that's why we bring on these guests. Uh, like I said, a studio here in North Minneapolis. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, check out LaceyJohnson.com. Uh, we got souvenirs, we got subscriptions you, you can do, uh, donations or whatever to this podcast that we bring you. Uh, Tonight's guest is Dr. Neil Shaw. Uh, Dr. Shaw is a dermatologist here uh, in the Twin Cities. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But just as importantly, he's a caring citizen who's decided to step up to the plate and run for governor of Minnesota because of some of the things that he's been seeing recently, some of the trends. And like me, he's thinking about his children, his grandchildren, and, and every other generation after that. So, as you know, uh, part of my little uh, tradition here is to just do a recap of my week and then get into uh, the interview. Uh, I'll start off by saying um, the German philosopher Nietzsche, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, had a saying that goes, that which does not kill us, make us stronger. And I'm just a big believer in that. And uh, I've said before, when I left home at 17 years old, I felt like uh, I'd been prepared to uh, deal with whatever the world brought my way. And I still feel that way. And that's because uh, that's the attitude I left home with. Uh, This week, oh boy, uh, I had a week uh, unlike I've had in the past 60 years, and I'll explain it uh, here shortly. had a busy Saturday. In fact, I had an 8 a.m. Uh, interview uh, appearance. So I was up at 6 and drove a while to get there and just run around busy. And in between my uh, two interviews and headed to St. Paul, I got a call from my wife. And uh, she asked me, had I talked to any of my sisters or brothers? Because they had been trying to get in touch with me. Uh, long story short, And this is where the 60 years come in at. Uh, They told me my second youngest sister had passed away in Houston uh, quite unexpectedly. And of course, uh, that hit me like a ton of bricks. uh, Hard to see a hurting behind that. Uh, Her name is Bridget D. Johnson. And Bridget's birthday would have been uh, this coming November 7th. And so it's kind of ironic. We will be having her services the day before, uh, right now, Saturday, November 6th. And um, you have to understand, give me a chance to talk a little bit about my family. And I've always uh, just cherished my childhood. And I sincerely uh, mean it. I would not uh, exchange my childhood and the people I grew up with and the lessons I learned and the lifestyle and the culture for all the money in the world and I, we, we didn't have much money we were poor and we struggled especially up until i got to the fourth grade uh in a small house but uh that was a certain uh belief in god belief in god certain uh strong family uh i tell people we had good food good music it was a good culture and that's to me it's 95 of the joy in life so i really am very appreciative of that Uh, I thought about my sister, Bridget, and just the memories we had, uh, just talking sometime and laughing. I remember when she she graduated from the University of Minnesota, and while she was going to the U, I was also living here. And uh, every once in a while, my mom would uh, uh, have concerns about her and call me late at night, but have me go over to Cedar Square West at the time where a lot of college students live and check on her. And you have to understand. Uh, that's a lot that changes between generations and, and, and backgrounds and cultures and things. But I'm from a culture where parents was just like, you You were more than happy to please them. You were happy for them to ask you to do something so you could do something to please them. And when my mom would call and ask me to do that, I was more than happy to go over there and check on them. And it just reminded me too of all the love and support and security and high expectations that my mom and dad uh, uh, led us with in the family. Uh, And it reminds me of the fact that a lot of the issues that we're seeing today uh, in various communities, especially these inner city communities, uh, where they're trying all these fancy programs and and nonprofits and things to try to uh, take the place of family. Look, these issues that we're looking at, even things like gun violence, uh, and i hope i'm wrong but if we think we're gonna solve this issue without rebuilding the families we're greatly mistaken we can throw all the money we want in the world world it. we can get all the fancy uh uh uh, child psychologists and violence experts out of the ivy league colleges and things like that and come up with all these great ideas it's not that complicated people uh children need to be loved they need to feel secure they need support high expectations they need families And I'm going to go even further. They need two parent families and not that there's not exceptions out there uh, where it cannot be successful. But I had I told someone the other day, sometimes it's like if for those poker players out there uh, drawing to an inside straight. But the bottom line, when I look back over over my life and we did uh, have challenges economically and everywhere else, uh, we were money poor but life rich. I mean, we were rich people, and I just look back on and I thank God for that. Uh, one last thing before we bring on our guests here. Uh, there have been a lot of people who have uh, contacted me in various ways and offered their condolences. And to all of you out there, I want to say thank you, and uh, we're going to march on and remember that, which that does not kill us, make us stronger, and that's the attitude I'm going to take. So having said that, and thank you for your patience. Let's bring on tonight's guest, uh, Dr. Neil uh, Shaw. Uh, Welcome to
1: Bright Lights, uh, Neil. Thanks so much for having me on, Lacey. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so uh, as with most of my guests, I think I've had some previous a uh, uh, personal conversation with them in communication. So, I have talked to, met with uh, Dr. Shaw, and we have had some great conversations. So, I'd like to bring him on here. Uh, first of all, Dr. Shaw, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born and raised. I know your family migrated here when you were young. Uh, from what I know and what I've from reading and talking to you, I know you brought that spirit of achievement to America. Uh, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? your childhood, and what spurred you to want to say, hey, I'm going to be a doctor and actually
1: become a doctor? So I was born and raised in a suburb of Chicago, Elmhurst, to Indian immigrant parents who came here about 50 years ago. My folks didn't know each other before they got here. They came here to, to go to university and uh, to get a better life. In my dad's case, he was the first one over, and the expectation was to make enough money and do well to bring everyone else over. Um, so he arrived here with no support. His dad had taken his entire life savings to send my father here alone, uh, across the ocean to a foreign and very cold land in Chicago. So he arrived without, you know, anything other than the scholarship he had to, to go to college. And the terms of that scholarship at the time where he had to maintain a 4.0 GPA, but he also had permission under his student visa to work enough to pay his tuition and no more. So he had to work about 20 hours a week and then maintain a 4.0, which he did. Uh, my mom arrived a couple of years later and similar situation, although a couple of my mom's brothers had come over here before her. And so she had at least some support network, but those folks arrived again, um, poor, and had to earn everything from scratch. And they both worked extremely hard. Um, They certainly didn't look like anybody else. They didn't dress like anybody else. And uh, they just wanted their shot at the American dream. Obviously, they were talented, but they worked extremely hard doing jobs that no one else would do, just like immigrants nowadays. And they worked their way all the way up. I was born when uh, they'd started a practice or a a kind of a tax and accounting firm for physicians. And so that was the family business. And like uh, every other immigrant family business, if you're a child, you get roped into it. So lots of uh, sorting paperwork and helping out with uh, the business as it grew, but they were incredibly successful. They had three boys who were all very successful and they lived um, what could only be described as the American dream. So that story is my background but it's not unique it's the story of well essentially everyone in this state came from somewhere else at some time and their parents came here and almost all of them were poor when they came here and they worked their way up so that's the american dream and i believe very firmly in it my family is just another piece of evidence that it's real that it exists. and uh, and that you can achieve things. And so I decided to become a doctor. I was good at science from an early age. I wanted to help people, typical doctor story. And so I maintained great grades in high school, um, went to college on a full tuition scholarship. At that point, I actually had a spot in medical school. It was a kind of combined program and opted out of that to uh, apply to different medical schools and ended up selecting the U. And it was kind of just by happenstance. I had a very close friend from high school who was getting his PhD here in computer science and it was an excuse to visit him and have a few beers. So I applied up here and absolutely fell in love with the U when I got here. And I think it, you know, at that time, it was one of the premier clinical training programs in the country. Um, it generated amazing clinicians. And I, I, uh, I think it still does from the, the students that I've seen uh, rotate through my practice. So. Uh, Finished a medical school here, uh, let's see, finished a med school in in seven, went down to Rochester and uh, trained at Mayo for four years and then moved back up here and started my family and started my practice.
0: Okay, well, a couple of little things you said there that I can't just let you skip over. Uh, And the first thing that caught my attention was, did you say that your father had to maintain a 4.0 grade point average to keep the scholarship?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's that's, back, I that's I back think like that. you get deported for busting your visa back then. So that wow. that was the term. It was, it was crazy. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but yeah, like, but it's doable, you know, and my mom told the same story. She had to work. I mean, there was no other support, you know, financially, it's not like they had a rich uncle. So right, right, right. the job my mom worked in a sweatshop. She worked injecting salt solution into pork in a processing plant. I mean, it was like crazy jobs that they would do just to make ends meet, just because they wanted to get through college and have a shot at it. And my mom at the time, I mean, this is like the early 70s, right? So my mom uh-huh. got an MBA and was climbing the corporate ladder. I mean, it, it, she was, you know, for that time, very progressive, you know, and, right. and a mover and shaker. And she wanted to get ahead and she wanted to be the CEO of some company. And uh, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it's just, it's just a great story. So and I I, know your background, the fact that you're in
0: politics and stuff, we know that uh, currently today, there's a large part of the population who thinks America is rotten and and we need to change it and and capitalism and free enterprise as a work and it's unfair to everybody. Uh, What? Give me a perspective from, let's say, your parents perspective. They want to come to America. But they don't have that image of america what what was their uh, uh image of america that made them and from what i understand there's 40 million people waiting to get into this country mm-hmm. what is about this country that your parents saw read or heard that really made them and motivated them to think this is the place i can go to be the best i want to be
1: you know in america uh, we don't care if you don't come from a fancy family. We don't care if your parents were dirt poor. We don't care if you were dirt poor. We're going to judge you by the content of your character and your individual merits and hard work. That's why they wanted to come here. They were escaping a country that still has vestiges of a caste system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were looking for a country that wasn't going to be destroyed by Keynesian economic theories. I mean India was the counterpoint to every country that followed Austrian economics right you had mm-hmm. India running the Keynesian experiment and failing and then you had other countries with uh, economic liberalism profiting. So they just wanted their shot and the story, the American story, the immigrant story um, you know it, it it's transcended time. no one liked the Italians or the Irish when they came here, no one liked the Germans that settled the Midwest. And certainly no one liked the Swedes and Norwegians when they came here, they put them in a cold, desolate place and said, go ahead and farm it if you can. Um, That the opportunity that all of those groups had, they had to carve out and they certainly were not given a handout. It certainly was not easy. And you can even see, you know, upward mobility in um, Hispanic immigrants. Mm -hmm. right? They've come here and they're moving up. So I think the American dream dream is accessible to all. Now, if you don't have that story in recent memory, it's easy to get caught up in the things that America could do better or historically did not do well. And this isn't to say that there were not times where there was not equality of opportunity, but certainly after the civil rights era, when my parents came here, there was, because heroes fought for those rights. Now that doesn't mean it's easy, and right. it doesn't mean that some rich kid's not gonna have a better shot than my folks did at achieving something, but it means you're at the card table, you've been dealt a hand, and you've got a chance to play that hand as well as you can play it.
0: I like the way you put that. One last indulgence in that area. Uh, we, and you're from Chicago. And we talked a little bit about the tough areas in Chicago. Uh, You understand the American dream and everything and uh, the other options out there. What would you say to a young child, a youth in, let's say, the south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago, uh, living uh, among violence, uh, gang activities, drugs, uh, and, and I don't want people to think we're just doing the stereotype, but there are people that I know that actually are this way. Uh, mom might be strung out on something, dad's in prison, and day after day they're hearing about how racist things are and they all almost have a sense of hopelessness. Give me, give them a perspective uh, similar to what your uh, parents brought to America to that would give them some hope. Uh, And I know you've already touched on some things, but what is something kind of simple you would say to a young person in that scenario living in America uh, about who they can become and what they can achieve?
1: I would tell that young child that they're a child of God and that there is greatness within them. And the choice to tap into that greatness and realize its potential is up to them. It's not up to anybody else. There will always be people who will try to knock you down and people who will oppress you and people who will be mean to you and try to take things away from you. You don't let them, you control that. This country elected a black president twice. We've had black CEOs. We've had any position you want to, you can achieve. Now, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be easy. It certainly wasn't easy for my folks. I had way more opportunity than they did if we're going to look at it like that. But there is greatness in everyone and it's up to you to realize it. You can't sit there and cry that you didn't have the same shot as the guy next door. My parents didn't have that shot that rich people had had that had been here before them. And um, even my children won't have the same shot that some generationally wealthy family has. And I'm not going to sit there and cry about it. I'm going to work as hard as I can and tell them that it's up to them They need to have an internal locus of control. They are in charge of their life, and they need to get out there and attack it and do well because there is greatness within them, and they can achieve their dreams if they work hard. Well, you know, uh, and I don't
0: want to trivialize the issue, but I really like the uh, card analogy. Uh, You're dealt a hand, Mm -hmm. and because someone have a better hand than you have— that's no reason to give up and cry and wail. And I, I, one of my favorite sayings by my dad was, uh, "Fair is a place where they judge pigs." So he, we didn't do fairness. Uh, <laughs> we didn't do easy. Uh, and so I think you're, you're exactly right. Somehow we've gotten to the uh, point now that we're so hung up on fair and easy. And I don't know whether they're teaching this in our schools or, or not, but our young people is just a lot, a lot of them. Uh, have this whole fairness and e- easy uh, ideal in mind that just is not life. So let's uh, briefly, let's talk about your current family. I know you're a family man, and uh, I think that is so important. In fact, I- I'm pretty much uh, consistent in saying that I think strong families are the foundation of strong societies and strong communities and things like that, and if you don't have that, uh, we're kidding ourselves that we're going to uh, resolve a lot of these issues. But basically, tell us about your current family, your wife and children. And, and uh, Neil, yeah. if you please.
1: So I, uh, I met my wife, Sarah, the last year of medical school. And uh, we got married while I was in my residency down in Rochester. Uh, we have three kids. They're eight, six, and five years old, girl, boy, girl. And um, they are, you know, after Sarah, the most important things in my life. And they're the reason that I'm running. And there, I think the reason why a lot of folks do what they do, we want a better future for those kids. My parents fought and scrapped so that their kids would have a chance to go to college and do better than they did. And I want the exact same thing for my children. So yeah, three little kids and they are really the, the light of my life, um, them and my wife. So, um, we, you know, we've, um, it, it parenting is a very interesting thing. I mean, you, you have to just adapt as best you can. We tell them all the time, life isn't fair. They'll whine that someone's cookie or slice of pie is slightly larger than the other one. And you say, Hey, it's too bad. You got to deal with it. You know, at least you have a cookie, there's plenty of kids yeah. who don't even have a cookie to start with and you're whining about how big it is or your sisters or brothers is bigger than yours. So yeah, we, we try to teach them that. And I know, having a father at home is something you've, you've talked about. I think that that's absolutely essential. Um, you need to have a mother, you need to have a father. They're different. They're not interchangeable. They give you different things. Okay. And they give you different things at different times of your life. And they give them to you in different ways because men and women are different and we have a different way of processing the world. Kids who start without a father at home, start just like you talked about the inside, <laughs> straight draw. Draw to inside the tree. Yeah, yeah. yeah inside yeah. straight. It's hard. And the yeah, data yeah. bear that out. I mean, yeah. this isn't controversial. Children born in a two-parent household have massive increase in economic opportunities. They don't go to jail. They don't commit crimes. They have a totally different outlook on life. And that's not to say that you should be downtrodden if you are in a single-parent home. Right. It's just to say that we should encourage and have policies that support having uh, a father and a mother at home. And policies that destroy that, policies that take the father out of the household um, will destroy the family. And if you destroy the family, you will destroy society yeah. in time. The family core nucleus is what keeps societies together. And we have to make sure that that's honored and valued uh, at a policy level.
0: Uh, I agree with you there. By the way, uh, your wife's name is Sarah. Mm-hmm. I, I have to ask you this. This is a little trivia kind of thing here. Does the song Sarah Smile have any special meaning to you and your wife? Or? Yeah, I, lo-
1: I love that song. <laughs> I love Hall and Oaks, but it's a great, <laughs> a great <laughs> song. Whenever <laughs> <laughs> it comes out, I turn it up, and then Sarah just looks at me like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did you play that during, during your
1: courtship <laughs> at all? <laughs>
0: so uh, let's uh, talk about your uh, gubernatorial race. Uh, you got in it, you say, because you're thinking about Uh, the future of your children and and future generations. Uh, Tell me that moment when you said, I'm going to do this. And and what what triggered that, if anything in particular triggered that?
1: Well, you know, as well as I do, that there's been an incredibly rapid change and deterioration in our country in the Mm. last couple few years. And the pace of that change seems to be accelerating. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what the solution is for that, but I can tell you that having career politicians continue to lead us is going to make that problem significantly worse. Um, I was incredibly upset with everything Tim Walls did during COVID during the lockdowns. Um, and I said, we can't handle four more years of this. My, my patients can't, my business can't, my kids can't, the state can't. So we need to run a credible candidate who's not a career politician who's going to beat them. And I looked at the field and I said, we're running the same folks. We always run and then we're going to be shocked when we get the same result that we always seem to get, which is loss. And then Tim Walls we'll have four more years of running the state into the ground. We don't have that luxury. We don't have that time we're already starting to hemorrhage our tax base. We're starting to see companies pack up and leave our state, go to better run states around us. That Once that process starts, it only accelerates. And we're right at that tipping point where we can turn the tide, but we don't have much time to do that. And that's the future that I see in store for our kids if we don't get different leadership that's not of the career political class someone who's going to get into office serve and then go back to their actual job because being a politician is not a job it's service and that's the the kind of candidate that I think that, that the population uh, wants to see in Minnesota and so I thought that I had something to offer as someone who was a small business owner a physician a father of young kids and not a career politician and uh, so far Well, it's turned out that there is a lot of demand for that. Yeah, we'll get into
0: uh, the whole COVID response and things like that here shortly. But uh, my personal thing, the first two weeks, I didn't know what was going on with COVID. But here's the thing. I read for myself. I don't count on, I don't depend on the news people to tell me what's going on. And as soon as I started reading for myself, I found out about all the studies that had been done, scientific studies and all the things they had found out that was not reflective of, of what we were seeing on the uh, mainstream media. And so I just took a totally different approach to it also. Now, uh, let's, let's delve into it because we're talking freedom. We know that there's a, a big controversy right now about the vaccine and, and, and whether or not you have the freedom to decide not to get it. Uh, we have a situation where people are losing their job because they choose not to get it. Uh, we know that a lot of that is not consistent with the science. I was telling someone because um, I read all kinds of newspaper all over the world. I was reading the Israeli newspaper and I saw where uh, they you have to have either have a vaccine or you have to have recovered, which means that they respect the fact that you're naturally immune to it and mm-hmm. nature has uh, but we don't seem to care about that or bring that up. Uh, so what was your take on uh, how uh, well first of all Governor Waltz, uh reacted to in his policy and a lot of people don't quite understand that you don't have to necessarily uh, be against the vaccine that there's a lot of personal freedom issues going on here, a lot of constitutional issues that we just can't suspend the constitution because there's a pandemic. So just give me uh, your uh, take and input on how, the uh, governor here in Minnesota responded to it and what you would have done differently.
1: Well, yeah, I think Tim Walls f- failed in every possible way. He failed to keep Minnesotans safe. So he did the Cuomo and sent uh, elderly patients back to nursing homes uh, that led to thousands of deaths. We know that that is not the correct answer to this. He then locked us all down, which is against, even at the time that he did it, against any reasonable amount of science on that. And over time, we've had uh, an incontrovertible amount of data come back and show us that states that locked down did no better or no worse. Actually, they tended to do worse than states that just stayed open as best they could. And so in the face of that data, um, he maintained the lockdowns and then he tightened them. The reality is you can't surf a tsunami. And the arrogance of the scientific class over this pandemic has been staggering. Some things you just have to try to survive Mm -hmm. and you can't control it. And we attempted to control this. We had models that failed from the very beginning and continued to fail. We had pundits like Anthony Fauci lie to us. Actually, initially he told us the truth about masks, which is they don't work. Uh, but he was lying to us to preserve, uh, supply of N95s, which can actually help. Um, so, and then he lied and said masks do work, which they don't. And now he wants to lie and say the vaccine is the only way through this. Look, if you're recovered, you have better protection than a vaccine could ever give you. In fact, the reason we have vaccines is not because they're better than natural immunity. Natural immunity is always better. The problem is you have to roll the dice to natural immunity and that can be bad. So if you can find a way around it that has very little risk and gives you pretty good immunity, then that's great. So then you don't have to get the disease. So that's why we have vaccines. And, and we have, you know, the best vaccine we have is something called yellow fever, one shot, 95 plus percent effective. Um, and we have other good vaccines, you know, uh, measles, mumps, rubella, the typical childhood vaccines that people get. And they have extremely little risk they've been vetted over a long period of time so we know what the side effects are and they have a significant net benefit. Uh, Now in this case we're rushing through uh, approval which I don't think is actually approval for a drug where you don't have the long-term side effects. They simply are just not known and the approval was based on data for strains that no longer exist. Alpha, beta Coronavirus uh, or SARS-CoV-2 was totally different than Delta or any of the newer strains. So the approval, you know, was for something that doesn't really exist. And the data on Delta is totally different. If you're vaccinated, to you get Delta, you can spread it. Like I was vaccinated. I just recovered from COVID a few weeks ago. I gave it to a bunch of people. So I got it most likely from someone who's vaccinated. I gave it to a bunch of folks who were vaccinated. The vaccine, if anything, protects you from death or hospitalization. That's the data at this point. And you can get that same level of protection. There was just a study today that was released uh, in the Wall Street Journal, a friend just sent it to me on a uh, very old antidepressant, uh, essentially reducing hospitalization and death. The, it was a clinical trial, randomized clinical trial, um, about the same as the vaccine. So, and we've had data on ivermectin for a long time. There's data on hydroxychloroquine. There's many other old drugs that have been used in other countries successfully that have a good evidence base for them and that's not to say that the vaccines don't have their place in all of the tools that we have to combat this you want all the weapons to fight this thing but this just focus on vaccination only and not tolerating natural immunity and not understanding that there are ways to treat this besides simply the vaccine and not realizing what the true benefits and risks of the vaccine are and that it won't prevent spread over a population. Just look at the data in Israel, look at the data in the UK where there's extremely high vaccination rate and cases are continuing to go up. The bottom line is we don't fully understand this disease. We learn more every day. We have effective therapeutics, everything from monoclonal antibodies to fluvoxamine to ivermectin to hydroxychloroquine. We have the vaccines, which have their role for high-risk patients, and it's time to just live our lives and stop cowering behind this ridiculous idea that we can control something that we don't even fully understand.
0: Uh, That's a good point. Uh, The analogy that I use is that, uh, you know, like when the floods are coming and people put out the sandbags to try to hold back the Mississippi River, you know, it just is not going to happen, people. And there's going to be some bad things that are going to come of this. Now, you mentioned some therapeutics and other things that's working well, but we seldom hear about those things in our media. Uh, Just to put you on the spot a little bit, uh, Dr. Shaw, because that's part of my job, Uh, how do you explain the fact that they A lot of this stuff that's going on elsewhere in the world and these studies and these therapeutics that we hardly ever hear about them in our media. What's your explanation? I got my own, but I, I'm the host so I can choose to keep mine to myself. You have to answer it, though.
1: Well, um, I don't think that I don't think the legacy media is interested in the truth. I think they're interested in narrative. And I think that they view themselves as activists and actual journalists. You know, the the, the Barry Weisses of the world, the Glenn Greenwalds, the Matt Taibis have all left the legacy media establishments and are out on their own. There are journalists out there asking good questions, but they don't work for the Strib or the New York Times or even the Wall Street Journal, to be honest. they The legacy media outlets are there to create rage. They're there to push a narrative, and they are certainly not there to inform their uh, readership of what the reality is in the world. And that's sad. You know, they used to be the fourth estate. I mean, they used to, uh, attempt to ask uncomfortable questions to people in power to get closer to the truth. And, uh, and they've stopped doing that for the most part. So, you know, they'll need to crash and burn and the legacy media will need to go away and something else will come back in its place. And I think that something else will be better. Uh, It'll be more diverse, it won't have a few large corporations in charge, and uh, hopefully they can get back to investigating the actual truth. But the good news is that science is democratic, and uh, COVID has made a lot of citizen scientists who have learned how to read papers and understand statistics and go to the primary source to understand what the data actually is on COVID. And that's not to say that there aren't conspiracy theories out there, Uh, uh, 5G does not cause COVID. But, you know, I, and I'm sure that'll make somebody mad out there, but sorry, that's reality. But the reality is that we do know a lot. It's just not reported. And that information right. is now out there for people to read about on their own and make educated decisions. And it makes me very happy to see people doing that yeah. more well, and more every day.
0: A lot of times when I see the conflict between people, there's the people out there who's reading non-legacy media stuff. And there's that population that, that's where they're getting their information from. And uh, they are, they, they're the ones that's off on a tangent, I think, based on what I'm reading. But the, the legacy media make you think other people are wrong. And I'm glad you used that term, legacy media. I'm glad you talked about journalism in the press. because, And I think you used the term sad. I think they're pathetic myself. And I just i, I watch. Oh, boy, it hurts me to watch and listen to the news sometimes. But I want to be prepared for other people are saying and what they're thinking. Uh, because uh, you'll probably find out as you're out there, it's just amazing the number of people just repeat what they hear or see mm-hmm. in legacy news. So well, th- that's enough of that. Uh, so we are where we are uh, with the COVID response. We have uh, businesses that have been destroyed, some of them forever. Uh, what would uh, Dr. Neil Shaw as governor and maybe I say, what would Governor Shaw do uh, to uh, help us recover from some of the uh, business situations and uh, that we really need to rebuild? How would you do that?
1: Well, yeah, I, I obviously as a small business owner, I think that business is incredibly important. It's the engine of growth. It's the engine of stability in neighborhoods and communities. Um People need to have good jobs that give them the opportunity to advance, that give them the opportunity to realize their dreams. And you need to have uh, people take risks and start those businesses. And you need to have an environment that encourages them to come in and do that. And when I look at the tax and regulatory environment in the state of Minnesota, I wouldn't start a business here unless there were some other extenuating circumstances to do that. I can look next door in the Dakotas, I can look in Iowa. I can look at Wisconsin, and all of those are going to have a better business climate than the state of Minnesota. Whether it's overregulation, for example, the pollution control agency being out of control and making life difficult for miners or people who want to run industrial businesses, or whether it is uh, Governor Walz's uh, obsession with California car mandates that are going to drive up the cost of doing business here or whether it is an obsession with renewables as opposed to all of the above energy, this is going to become an increasingly difficult state to attract business builders and business makers to. And that trickles down to reduced job and um, economic prospects for average Minnesotans. So we need to take a serious look at how we reduce the size and scope of the regulatory state, how we encourage economic refugees from Chicago, for example, to relocate to Minnesota, and how we retain our best and brightest entrepreneurs in this state by eliminating our income tax, reforming our death tax, or eliminating that and reforming cap gains taxes. The taxes have to go down. We have to create a favorable regulatory environment. And then we need to go hard after bringing businesses up here that want to relocate from places like Chicago, Minnesota is unique compared to the States around us and that we have a much bigger industrial base. We have huge ag industries. We have mining, we have high tech and low tech manufacturing. We have the best healthcare in the world We're a $400 billion economy. That should be a half trillion dollar economy in a decade if we choose to do so, but we can't continue to run the same playbook and expect, um, our economic fortunes to improve?
0: So I understand our current governor uh, used to be a teacher. So I'm assuming that he has some understanding of basic math and logic. Uh, When people are moving out with incomes of $200,000 a year and moving in with incomes of $37,000 a year, when we see companies moving to surrounding states and elsewhere, we look at our tax base and our taxes and stuff. I'm trying to figure out how anyone sitting in that office would not take some steps to lower corporate taxes, to do some things to encourage business incentive, to be concerned about putting businesses out of business Uh, to understand the importance of the metro area in our state economy and to understand that uh, it's the taxes that these businesses generate that goes into government coffers to do the things that we want to do. I guess, and and I'm just being honest now, I'm I'm going off script, but I'm just being honest here. How do a person sit there? How do we keep electing these governors that see this trend and it just keep going and going and going, and they don't do anything about it. Uh, I, I just, even if you're a liberal, I don't understand those things. So do you understand why we're not doing anything about these particular issues? Because sooner or later, and the math said, it's going to catch up with us, or it <laughs> already has. It's going to make it even worse. So do you, how, do you, how do you explain, and you're new to politics too, I can't understand how they continuously let this trend exist. Do you have an explanation for it, uh, 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 Neil?
1: Because when the birds come home to roost, they'll be retired. They
0: yeah, I guess that's true. They don't.
1: They don't care yeah, about yeah, Minnesota true. twenty that's, years, that's from now, that, years from now, fifty or a hundred years from now. They care true. about staying in power. Yeah. Yeah, they care about gaining personal wealth, and then perhaps moving on to K Street like uh, Tim Pawlenty did, yeah. and becoming a lobbyist, or who knows what. These guys aren't interested in the welfare of this state long term, and they are definitely not interested in making hard decisions and cuts and unpopular changes that are going to put the state on a better long term trajectory if it means endangering their political career. The career Mm -hmm. politicians are optimizing for their career at the expense of everyday Minnesotans and the future of the state and the future of this country.
0: I think you can apply that to any political level that uh, it's not about the future. But here's the thing. And until we voters start insisting that, and we educate ourselves, and that becomes important. Because what I understand, the politicians are giving us what we want, well, what we think we want. They're mm-hmm. a reflection of us. And yeah. the fact that we're not holding them accountable, that we're, we're, we don't know what's going on economically at the state level. And even though people see uh, people coming in from Chicago and other places looking uh, for a better life. And some of them are getting on the social services and, and, and really taxing those things. Uh, it just, our voters don't seem to care. And I keep repeating, and this is this is the challenge, I think, for you and any politician who really want to uh, solve these issues, uh, that and my son, I keep repeating, my son told me this, people care more about how you make them feel than mm-hmm. what you do for them. And we got a lot of people making people feel good. But you and I know that's going to be a price to pay down the road. And we're thinking about our children and our grandchildren. And so anyway, uh, let's keep fighting that fight uh, and try to never get in a situation where we've shut down businesses. And once again, it's important to me because I've been here long enough to know that Greatness of Minnesota, the greatness of the metropolitan area downtown Minneapolis. That we can get back to that. Uh, Speaking of that, uh, you're dealing with basically, and according to how you look at it, at least two, maybe three different uh, demographic and geographical areas when you're running at the statewide level. You got the outstate, you got the suburban, and the metro, and you might want to combine those two, but. is there a different approach, or are you looking at it as as uh, everybody got common interests across the state and there might be some unique issues within uh, our state versus a uh, metro area? How are you approaching that from a uh, candidacy strategy kind of point of view?
1: Yeah, I, clearly there's differences between different areas of the state. A lot of those are going to be economic and what businesses are there. So, you know, if mining produces a lot of jobs, well, then that's a big industry for you. And, um, you know, that is going to drive a lot of how you specifically message. But at the core, people want the same thing. They want the opportunity to be successful economically. Uh, People want lower taxes. They want the government out of their homes and businesses. They want the opportunity to flourish. They want education that actually works and teaches kids as opposed to just lining the pockets of the union. Um, They want to be safe at home and on their streets, no matter if they're in Hibbing or North Minneapolis. And that's basically it. There's more that pulls us together than separates us. The question is, which set of uh, philosophical governance strategies is going to deliver wins in more of those areas? And we know that conservative values and ways of governing deliver more wealth, More prosperity, more security, more liberty, and more freedom. So that's the pitch. And, you know, I I think there are there people within the metro area are frustrated. We've seen their children killed on their front steps. They're frustrated with schools that have completely failed and seem to have no ability to correct themselves. They want the economic opportunities that are being withheld from them. And folks in the metro are going to need to start voting different and looking at different solutions because it's very clear that 50 years of Democrat rule have just run the cities further and further into the ground. And I actually think that there's a lot more in common between someone that's black in North Minneapolis and someone that's poor and white and hibbing than there is between someone who lives in the metro and looks at someone who lives in Edina and is upper middle income.
0: All right. Uh, so as far as the education is concerned, uh, and those of us who've been following the studies and things that's out there uh, that the legacy media doesn't cover, we kind of uh, have concluded that we our approach to that was all wrong. But I want you to tell me, when you look at the uh, approach to COVID and shutting down the schools and online learning and, and all the things there, what was your reaction to it and if you think so uh, why wasn't it not consistent with the science and the studies that you're familiar with
1: well it's it's not even just what i'm familiar with europe never locked down their kids because they realized how ridiculous it was kids don't spread covid they don't die of covid they're they need to be in school And the more economically fraught their situation is, the more important it is that they stay in school because once you fall a certain amount behind, you are not going to catch up and we've completely changed the trajectory of your life. So kids never should have been pulled out. Never, ever. There was no science to support it. And they should have been pulled. They should have remained in. They should never have done the ridiculous test and trace method that they did after that. What they should have asked is simple screening questions. Are you symptomatic? If you're symptomatic, get tested as quickly as you can and come back, you know, an hour later. And if you're positive, then go home and quarantine until you recover. That's it. That's how it should have been handled. But instead, you had weak leaders like Tim Wallace listening to the teachers' unions who did not, they, they, the teachers' unions wanted to get paid the same money and sit at home and not worry about teaching kids. That's what they wanted to do. And they were afraid and they did not want to follow any type of science. And they still don't. They sacrificed the future earnings in trillions of dollars of millions of kids so that they can make a few dollars more. And they should be held to account for that. Uh, I,
0: that's a very good point. So as long as we're on education and you talked about, I mean, my, my personal mistake is we already have an achievement gap uh within the inner cities and a lot of these uh, among black students and the policies during COVID just widen the gap i don't mm-hmm. think i mean we had enough uh challenges closing that gap originally now they just widen it even more and it's going to be more of a challenge so as far as uh, I, I saw where you talked about uh safe communities as part of your platform mm-hmm. uh Give us an explanation of what you would do to provide greater safety in these communities, at the same time as uh, improving people people's confidence in law enforcement. So those are the two things that we want to carry along t- together. Right? How would uh, you achieve that, Neil?
1: Well, it's 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 a challenge, and you need to do a number of things in order to make those communities safe. It can't just be this simple, you know, more police are the answer. No, that's not the answer, okay? So you need to have a police force. You absolutely do, and the people who live in the most dangerous neighborhoods want a police force. Now, they very reasonably want a well-trained police force that's responsive, respectful, and does not kill innocent people. That's not an unreasonable ask. So we want cops that are trained well. Now, what the police unions need to do is look at, why and how bad cops hang around and the blue wall of silence has to be addressed and the contracts that allow for police that should not be cops that uh have no business doing that job need to be taken out they need to find another occupation and we need to ensure that good honest folks who 99.9% of law enforcement are, are the ones who are in there. And we don't let the few bad apples that are in there ruin it for everybody else. But, you know, training needs to improve. I mean, you know, your average person who does an hour of jujitsu every week is doing more combatives training than anyone in law enforcement. And there's plenty of, I probably spend more time at the range doing tactical shooting drills than most police officers. Neither of those things is good. And you see the consequences of that. If you're pulling out a taser and killing somebody and you're pulling out a firearm, killing somebody, you think it's a taser. That's a training problem. That's a hundred percent a training problem. And that needs to be addressed. And it's incredibly tragic because events like that destroy the relationship between the community and law enforcement. Law enforcement is absolutely essential for those communities where law enforcement is pulling back. Crime is even more out of control. This it's easy to say, defund the police when you live in Edina. And you have police there keeping you safe. Well, you need cops. They need to enforce the law and the judges need to do their job too. I don't think enough time is spent really explaining how bad the judges are at their job. Judges need to keep criminals behind bars. This is why we have jail, okay? Not to prosecute people and harass them for minor offenses, but violent criminals, rapists, murderers, people who commit assault need to be locked up. And judges need to ensure that they're not out running on the streets on no cash bail or because it satisfies some bizarre progressive ideology. And we need prosecutors who actually do their jobs. Again, not serve some progressive ideology. We have enough laws on the books, maybe too many. We need to enforce those laws. We need to prosecute serious crimes. We need to have judges actually sentence criminals who break the law. And we need law enforcement to help enforce the law but to do so in a respectful manner with adequate training.
0: Okay. Where are you relative to school choice and, uh, the importance of that, uh, in the education of our children and our grandchildren?
1: So it's clear that our schools are failing. We have reducing test scores. We have widening, uh, educational or gaps. And so it's clear that what we're doing now, which is shoveling more money at the teachers unions and a failing public school system is not working. So what do you do if you don't like your choices in a market? You increase the number of market entrants. And the way you do that is putting dollars behind every student having them follow the kid. So if your public school is failing, now you can leave. And you can go to a charter school, a private school, parochial school, or you can homeschool like more and more families are doing and have the financial support and resources to do that. Or you can start a micro school. We need kids to have uh, educational opportunities that fit their needs. This isn't a one size fits all cookie cutter type deal. And our public school systems are increasingly failing our special needs kids. They're failing our gifted and talented kids. They're failing everybody across the board. And the way to make them improve is to put them financially at risk so that they have to serve the kids who go to those schools. And if they do a great job, they'll be rewarded by increasing enrollment. But if they go woke and do a poor job or don't train kids for the skills that are needed in the community, then they'll see their enrollment decline.
0: Well, we here at Bright Lights uh, have been bringing on all the gubernatorial candidates. Anybody out there who's running for governor of Minnesota uh, that we ha- that haven't been on, you're welcome to be on. I tell people because we have viewers across the country that Minnesota is in a way a microcosm of a lot of things that's going on in this country uh, as far as the woke people and social justice and, and reform and things like that, rebuilding the economy, dealing with the COVID issue. Uh, so I invite anyone on uh, who's running for governor to get your views out. So And I really appreciate uh, 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 Dr. Shaw being on today. Uh, Dr. Shaw, a couple of issues we're going to talk about, and then we're going to start wrapping up here that I know uh, issues that's part of your platform. Uh, Let's talk about the Second Amendment. Uh, What's your stance on the Second Amendment? And uh, what are you saying to uh, potential voters about the Second Amendment?
1: Well, I think that conservative voters generally understand the Second Amendment. Um, A lot of folks in the center, maybe left of center, don't quite understand why it's there. And so I would love to be an ambassador for the Second Amendment and explain why I carry a firearm every day to protect my family, uh, my patients and my business. And why the Second Amendment is not about hunting. It's about protecting your God-given right to defend yourself uh, from tyranny. And from criminals and from the government. And that is a concept that um, we need people out in front and leading on. The best example I can give you of why we have the Second Amendment and how it works in practice is when Tim Walls abor- ordered the third precinct abandoned and allowed it to burn to the ground, the businesses in that neighborhood were left to fend for themselves because Walls refused to send the guard in. When it could have done something my barber runs a barbershop that was across the street from the third precinct and he managed to keep his barbershop from burning down by standing armed guard with a friend day after day until walls actually decided to act no one got shot but the barbershop did not burn down and that is why we have the second amendment and without that you turn into Australia. So for everyone who says, oh, you know, I don't know if you could Joe Biden saying you need F-16s and whatever. No, if the government does not, if the government thinks they can take all of your rights with impunity, then they will. And you will end up just like Australia. So the Second Amendment is a key part of our country, a key part of our founding, and it should be a key part of everyone's lives. And when people talk about gun control or restricting the second amendment, they fail to understand that criminals are the ones who violate the law. And so no amount of laws are going to keep them from breaking the law. You know, Murder is illegal, yet people continue to commit it. So all these restrictions or quote unquote reasonable gun control do is restrict the rights of honest law abiding Americans to defend themselves, their family, and um and their economic interests and so i'm a big believer in the second amendment i think that's a big difference between the gubernatorial candidates you have people who co authored universal background check legislation you have people who don't understand the the basic rules of gun safety and then you have someone who carries every day um, and understands why we have the second amendment and why it's important to all communities particularly communities of color particularly communities that are being um, destroyed in the modern uh, leftist crime wave?
0: Well, I, I tell people, I, where I grew up at, everybody had guns, at least three of them, and we didn't kill each other. Uh, one of the main reasons, because we were Christian, we believe in the Ten Commandments, "Thou should not kill. Uh, but uh, I was talking to the head of the trustee at the church that we're gonna have my sister's services at today, uh, about uh, using the church and i just we got on the uh, issue of hunting and i just asked uh, him how many guns did he have and he even surprised me. he said about 30 <laughs> 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 and once again so the issue is not necessarily uh, 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 uh guns and for those out there who think it's just a bunch of rednecks uh, riding around one guns with Confederate flags on their pickup truck. I suggest you go out to one of the gun shops and gun ranges here close to the metro area, and you'll be surprised who you see out there. I see a lot of women out there, a lot of black women out there, minority women, Latinos out there. And if you think about it, and I don't know what people be thinking, you want to uh uh defund the police get rid of the police and you don't expect for people to go buy guns to protect themselves because they can't rely on the police uh and so anyway that uh, one more well one more thing about the second amendment and this is more of a rhetorical thing uh i'm just as concerned about other amendments in the bill of rights and it doesn't seem like other people are the freedom of press and and uh, unwarranted search and seizures mm-hmm. and and the presumption of innocence. And this is where I'm going. It just seemed like to me, especially within conservative circles, that they've elevated the Second Amendment to such high heights that they've almost forgotten about the other Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see us get to the point where we're uh, defending the. Other amendments in the Bill of Rights, ten amendments that make up the Bill of Rights. As much as we are the Second Amendment, and just just a quick commentary. Uh, and, and really, when it comes to presumption of innocence, mm-hmm. right now we, I mean, all they got to do is charge someone, and everybody will assume they're guilty. Right. And we we as a country don't understand how important it is. And I tell people also, the scary part to me is that people who've forgotten about the presumption of innocence. They are now serving on juries. <laughs> and you would like, I mean, they don't understand how important that is. And so that's just something to you uh, when you get, a, as you go into politics and rise up in politics, all these amendments are important. And as far as I'm concerned, they're the foundation of our democracy, the Bill of Rights. And we just don't know them. We don't care about them. And seem like the only one we talk about is the Second Amendment. That's my commentary for the day. Uh, One last thing. I saw you had something out. Well, no, two things. Uh, pro-life. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your stance on abortion and uh, you got pro-life? Why you label yourself yeah. as pro-life?
1: Yeah, so I, well, I'm pro-life from conception. Life begins at conception. That's a biological fact, not an opinion. And all life has intrinsic value and it must be defended. And so, you know, I think the youngest Minnesotans, the unborn Minnesotans need that protection. And I do not think that the government should be funding the murder of unborn Minnesotans. We should cherish all life from the moment it begins, which is at conception.
0: Okay, and we'll talk some more. i probably have you on again. Uh, I, I'm a, As a Christian, I tell people I'm against it also. Uh, I got a little different approach to it. I think it's a hard and mind issue, more so than it's a legal issue and a political issue. So we'll talk about that too. I see where uh, we won't have time to talk about energy in line three, uh, maybe the second time around. I see where it's getting pretty close to wrapping up. So uh, Dr. Shaw, Neil. Uh, I always like to offer our guests the opportunity to discuss uh, any subject that I, as your fallible host, uh, was not smart enough or intuitively uh, intuitive enough to ask of you. Is there anything that you'd like to cover tonight that we haven't uh, covered? And then I'll let you leave our audience with some enthusiastic, positive comments to sign off
1: on. I would just like to encourage all of your listeners and viewers to, to realize that their vote does count and to open their mind to candidates who are not going to be the same type of career politicians that we're used to and to realize that there is a bright future for the state and for this nation and your vote does matter. You don't need to vote a certain way because your skin has a certain color. You don't need to vote a certain way because you live in a certain area and you should make that decision for yourself, and you should choose people that represent the interests that you have and the future that you wanna see. And I believe that there is such immense greatness in this state, and I am an eternal optimist for the future of this state and of this great nation, the greatest of all nations that humans have ever created. And I look forward to my children living in that nation and raising their kids in that nation, but we have to fight to maintain it because we're only a generation away from tyranny at any point, just like Reagan said. And we saw what the beginnings of tyranny look like in this country with the lockdowns. We have to fight back against that. We have to fight to defend liberty. It is fragile, but it's within our power to maintain it. And um, we need to maintain America is the greatest country. Uh, that's ever existed, and I'm confident that we can do that.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Shaw, for being uh, the guest on Bright Lights tonight. Uh, I uh, salute you for your sacrifice and your service. I have some idea uh, of what that takes. <laughs> and I say to my audience out there, uh, you know, we have to do our homework. Uh, I, and I have an idea of how challenging it is to Uh, uh, undo uh, the information that the legacy media uh, gives us. Because they tell us what they want us to hear, not necessarily what we need to hear. So I just encourage our audience, no matter how tough it is, is to go out. When they mention a study, uh, go out and read the study for yourself. And if you just start there, uh, it will soon dawn on you that what they're telling you about the study isn't really exactly what the study says. And once you start down that process where you are putting in the work and reading for yourself, because, look, we cannot keep this democracy without us working. We think it's easy to just go to work and we're tired and come home and kick up our feet and enjoy and just sit down and listen to the news. If we continue to do that, we're going to continue to lose this democracy because we got some very smart people out there who's who's up to no good and they know how to manipulate opinions And they know that a lack of knowledge allows them to manipulate opinions. And so I'm saying to you, whether you agree with someone or not, just go out and try to read stuff for yourself and not depend on anybody else to tell you what somebody said or to show you an edited video. Go out and watch the whole video yourself. And if we get into that habit, I think it'll change uh, who you think is being honest and truthful. I think it'll change your whole perspective on that. I know it did for me. And so I I encourage our audience to be curious, go out and work hard and learn and know things. And once again, thank you, uh, Dr. Shaw, for being on. We hope to have you on again and good luck in your pursuit of uh, the uh, governorship to make this a better state and say say hi
1: to Sarah for me too. Okay. I will. Thank thank you so much, Lacey. Yeah, okay. I appreciate that. And for your listeners, if they want to check out the campaign more, it's electneil.com, E-L-E-C-T-N-E-I-L.com. And they can read where we're at on various policies and hopefully follow along with us. I appreciate okay. the opportunity.
0: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for adding that in there too. I should have given you an opportunity to do it. Okay. Thanks, Doc. Uh, see you soon. Thanks, All right. audience. Thanks everybody for tuning in to Bright Lights. next. Uh, hey, I might not be here next Wednesday. I might be a home uh, for the services, but we'll try to keep things going anyway. So I appreciate my audience. Thanks, everybody. Good night.